You ever heard this? Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house. <laughs> Remember that? How about this? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know that one, right? At least I hope so. <laughs> so let me ask you this. How do those two fit together? And how is it that this time of year we get all wrapped up in things like shopping and family gatherings, lights and trees, gifts and stress? And how does the story of the shepherds out in the field and the light shining around them translate to putting lights on a tree? You ever think about that? And what about that story about Joseph and this young virgin girl, Mary, and then baby Jesus? And as someone once said, how did we get from the manger to the mall? <laughs> and how did we get from the wise men to Wall Street? And that got all mixed together. And here's another question for you. How did we arrive at December 25th? Did you ever fact check that? Has anybody seen Jesus' birth certificate? <laughs> and beyond all these traditions that we have, how is this tied to your life? That story in Luke, the second chapter, how's that tied to your life? And what's the significance of that birth that is recorded there in Luke, the second chapter? So this morning, I want us to kind of walk down through this a little bit and see if we can kind of make sense of all this and how this really does pertain to our life. So first of all, I want to notice from Luke, the second chapter, and I want to ask this question. Is this real history? When you read Luke, the second chapter, did that actually happen? Are you reading history? Because Luke, we would claim, is a historian. So I'm going to read from Luke, the second chapter, just a couple of verses. Can't read that entire thing, but I would encourage you to read Luke, second chapter, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, and it says, It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house was of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Verse 8. Now there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So I ask you once again. Was there a child named Jesus born in Bethlehem when Caesar Augustus ruled over Judea? I'm going to give you the short answer. That's an emphatic yes. And Luke is a historian. And he does record that fact for us. And if you take the time to research it, there's probably not any other historical fact that is more readily attested to than the historical character Jesus of Nazareth. There is no doubt that he lived and he walked the hills and plains of Judea. The Jewish historian Josephus records for us that he was a real live historical character but Josephus is not the only one I'm just quoting him this morning and that he was a religious leader spiritual teacher and gained many followers he attests to that the fact that Jesus lived and walked this earth is not even really seriously Contested. But let me ask you this. What about that December 25th thing? Was that when he was born? And let me uh, suggest this also. The early Christians, did they celebrate December 25th? Don't find that one, do you? So kind of how did that all get started? Well, just think back with me for just a moment. In the early days of Christianity, Christianity was originally seen as a sect of Judaism. And living in the Roman Empire at that time, the Romans tolerated Judaism and the Jews for a while until they didn't. (laughs) But because Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism, it was tolerated for a while until it wasn't. See, because at that particular time, living in the Roman Empire, they worshipped all kinds of gods. And you were free to worship your God as long as you worshiped Caesar. And that's where the rub came in. Because sooner or later they began to discover that these Christians, they didn't acknowledge Caesar as God. And they said they had one king that they owed their allegiance to. And that that, their king was the only king that was worthy of worship. Tell that to Caesar and see how that goes. It did not go well. And so Rome brought persecution 
they brought severe persecution. Rome wanted to stamp out Christianity. But it was the strangest thing. The more persecution they brought, the more these people talked. And no matter how severe the persecution became, they kept giving their allegiance to this Jesus and their king and saying that he was God. And so Rome said, we'll kill you. We'll put you to death. And they said, our king, you already put to death. And that didn't stop him. Because after three days, he walked out of that grave. And because he lives, you kill me, you just usher me into the presence of my king. So I won't stop talking. And I'll keep spreading this story. And they did. And it went throughout the known world. In fact, they gained so many followers that by the 4th century, there were so many Christians. Guess what? The emperor of Rome became a convert to Christianity. Constantine. Emperor of Rome became a follower. And so you know what he did? He declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Isn't that something? Even though he declared Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, that didn't immediately do away with all the other pagan worship and all the other gods that were being worshipped within the Roman Empire. And do you know when they had some of their biggest celebrations for their gods? December. And one of the celebrations that they had was to celebrate the winter solstice because they worshipped an eternal sun god. And as the days got longer, that was reason to celebrate. So you know what Constantine did? He declared a celebration. You know when that was? December 25th. Some suggest that that was actually kind of a political move. Imagine that. (laughs) Because if we establish a celebration, that'll kind of distract from their celebrations. And so December 25th, Constantine says that's when we'll celebrate. And as emperor, you can do those kind of things. (laughs) And so he did. First time it was formally celebrated, and you can look this up, (laughs) 
336 A.D. In Rome. It's officially Christmas is celebrated. But I want to tell you something about Constantine also before we move on. About 11 years earlier, Constantine was also instrumental in the council that was brought together at Nicaea. Have you heard of that? The Nicaean Creed? The religious leaders got together. And one of the statements that came out of that is that they decided that the Father was God, the Son was God, and the Holy Spirit was God. There's a trinity. Imagine that. New Testament had been declaring that for a long time, but they got together and decided, that's true. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there was also something else they said. The Son. God the Son was the one who became incarnate. Do you know it wasn't until about the ninth century that Christmas became widespread and celebrated? You can check it out. It's historically recorded. But that's how we got here with this. And so December 25th, some people say, is that when he was born? Well, you got one in 365 chances of getting it right, right? But for the most part, that probably wasn't when it happened. But that's not really the issue. That date is not really the issue. You want to know what the issue is? And what the claim of the scriptures are? This is the claim. God became flesh. The Son became incarnate. God stepped into time and space. He joined our world. That's the claim. That's the real issue. So what's the significance? I want to read to you from Matthew, the first chapter. It's Matthew and Luke who make mention of the birth of this child. I'm going to start at Matthew chapter 1 and at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king 
Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's the claim. What time was that? Well, that's why I had Clayton read from Galatians, the fourth chapter this morning. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those that were under the law. The fullness of time. At the correct time, God sent forth his son, fully man and fully God. That's the claim. God stepped into, took on flesh, and entered our world. And I'm going to tell you the rest of this in just a moment. But I'm going to tell you this ahead of time. Why did he do that? And the reason? He was on a rescue mission. That's why he did that. You and I, we were in trouble. Mankind had fallen far short of what God had intended for us. And far short of His holiness. We were disqualified from being in a relationship with the one who had created us. The very relationship that we most need, we were now disqualified for. And we couldn't fix it. Because we were broken. And we were broken on numerous levels. And if you die in that condition, you're forever separated from God. So God the Father sent God the Son on a rescue mission. And a lot of times, the part of that story that people read is Luke the second chapter. That's the part they read. Unto you this day, in the city of David, a child is born who is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Isn't that a nice story? (laughs) That part of the story? But he was born to be a sacrifice. He was going to pay a debt, not for himself, but for us. So the Bible claim is clear as you read the rest of the story. Jesus Christ came to this world and he showed us 
what God had intended when He made man and woman. And that's why Peter will say, we'll be studying soon, that he left an example that we should follow in his footsteps. And so he lived as an example. And he taught with wisdom and love. He gave us the greatest moral code man has ever known. But he was born to die. To make atonement. To take our place. And he paid that price. In hopes that we would look to him. Because he was on a rescue mission. And when he came on that rescue mission, he knew it was going to cost him his life. And that birth scene in Luke, the second chapter, that's just the arrival. The Savior is now on sight. That's what that's saying. Emmanuel. God with us. And the prophets of old pointed to it. And he came once. And the New Testament tells us he'll come back. And you and I, we're living between those two advents. He first arrived as Savior and King. And he wants us to embrace him now. And if we refuse, that debt that he came to pay for us, you'll carry that debt yourself before the throne. And you'll have to stand before him on your own. But he came that we might embrace him. <coughs> And if you do embrace him, the Apostle Paul says that you will find a peace that passes understanding. And you'll find a meaning to life that you'll never be able to find without him. And so what we need to do is we really need to understand that whole story. Because the more interesting question is not whether or not the date of Christmas is accurate. The more interesting question is how does that little segment fit in with the rest of the story? How does that fit in with creation and what God originally intended? How does that fit in with rebellion? How does that fit in with sin? How does that fit in with Him as our Savior? How does that fit in as Him being a sacrifice? How does that fit in with Him being our King? Let me tell you an interesting point in regards to the Bible itself. Do you know the Bible is continually on the best sellers list? <laughs> but as someone has pointed out, it's unfortunate it may be on the bestsellers list, but it is not on the most read list. 
Because people have a tendency to buy it and then they only want to read certain parts of it. And oftentimes, this is what is so strange, that oftentimes whenever they read it, they're looking for comfort and strength and peace for their life. And the only way you find that comfort and strength and peace for your life is by understanding the whole story. <laughs> because just small segments of it won't do it. And yet at this time of year, oftentimes they'll read Luke, the second chapter. And that's a nice story. But they don't understand the rest of it. Because the Bible is a story. And it's a story from the opening pages all the way to the closing pages. And the Bible is told really like most other good stories. There's an introduction. And then there's this crisis. And then there's a resolution or solution. And then there's a conclusion. And that's the way most good stories are told. And this one... This is the greatest story that's ever been told. And it's sad that most people don't know the story. In the beginning, in the introduction, it sets the stage. <laughs> and it introduces you to the main characters. And the main character... A holy, loving, benevolent God, creator, creates. And he creates man and woman to be in his image. And then he puts them in charge. And the world at that moment, for that moment, is just the way it should be. But then it moves forward. And there comes a villain. <laughs> and there comes rebellion. And there comes sin. And it brings the creation down. And that's the crisis. And it sets up pain. And sorrow. And suffering. And brokenness. But that loving, benevolent God immediately responds. And He sets in motion a plan. And He makes a promise. And the promise is that He will send someone to rescue His creatures and to defeat evil and to build a bridge back to Him. But there's something else in the introduction that we come to realize. That the problem that man created, he can't fix by himself. And so it is a rescuer that will have to restore us and right the wrongs. But it's going to be at the cost of his life. I don't have to have the time to tell you all the details in between. But you move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12. And God calls a man. And he tells this man about the plan that he has. 
and how it's going to involve his family. And through Genesis, you'll follow the story of that family. And Abraham will have a son, and his son will have a son, and then that son will have 12 sons, and eventually they'll all end up down in Egypt. And then they'll be enslaved. And you know what God does? This loving, benevolent creator, he sends a rescuer after them. And he brings them out of bondage by his power and by his leadership. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And you know what he does at Mount Sinai? He reveals himself even further. And he enters into a covenant agreement with them. But even though they've been delivered, they're still rebellious. And so it'll end up them being wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they can make it into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. But he is loving, he is patient, and he tolerates them and bears with them until he eventually does bring them into the promised land. And then once they are in that promised land, you know what they do? They rebel again. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. And they suffer all kinds of consequences because of their rebellion. And God keeps pleading with them. But you know what they say? You know what would really fix this problem? If we had a king. If you would just give us a king. So you know what God does? He gives them a king. And you know what kind of king He gives them? Exactly what the kind they asked Him for. (laughs) And you know how that turns out? Terrible. (laughs) You got just the kind of king you wanted. And how would that work out for you? So God says, let me select the king. The most unlikely of characters according to the way they look at things. He calls a boy. A shepherd boy. And oh, he's got his issues too. (laughs) He's got his flaws, but there's something else he has. He has a heart. A man after God's own heart. And yes, he has his ups and his downs. And God has to work with him. But you know what that king does? He manages to unite those tribes. And he defeats their enemies. And he establishes that kingdom. And then he wants to build a house. Not for himself, but for God. And God says no. You're a man of blood. You're not the one. It's going to have to be your son. But David did help establish Jerusalem as the capital. And so the temple will be built there. And Solomon will be the one to do it. But Solomon, he had his issues. And at his death, his sons end up dividing the kingdom 
and they go off into apostasy. And the northern tribes first, and the Assyrians come and carry them away, and then the southern tribes hang on for a little while longer, and then the Babylonians come and carry them away. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, you're going to be gone for 70 years, and they were. But you know what this loving, benevolent, merciful God did? He said, I'm going to send somebody to rescue you again. And he did. And he brought them out of Babylonian captivity. And he brought them back to their homeland. And they rebuilt the altar so they could offer sacrifice. And they, they sought to rebuild the walls and the temple and the city as they sought to restore that relationship. But I want to add something else to that story. I want to back up for just a moment. Because this is important. When God brought them to Sinai, there were some important truths that He was trying to get across to them, that He was trying to reveal to them. He revealed Himself more fully to them. And His holiness. And one of the ways in which He did it was by the giving of the law. You look at this law and you'll know something about your God. You look at this law and you'll know something about the kind of people that you ought to be. He is holy, therefore you ought to be holy. But not only did He give them a standard for holiness. You know what else that law did for them? It revealed where they fell short. So they would understand their sin. At Sinai, they also, also came to understand you can't approach a holy God without sacrifice. You can't come before Him without being forgiven. So you know what God did? He gave Him the tabernacle. And He gave Him the priesthood. And He gave Him sacrifice. And it's the most amazing thing. That through that sacrifice, you know what they were supposed to learn? That through a third party, through an innocent third party, you can be forgiven. But that third party has to die. And he told them, the life is in the blood. And the blood has to be poured out. That life of that innocent third party has got to be poured out. And so he set up a system of sacrifice. And it was gruesome. 
It was gruesome by design. But in that sacrifice, they should be able to see God's love. And how he was pointing to a substitutionary death. How he was pointing to a perfect sacrifice. So from the very beginning, God promised to send a rescuer. And through the ages, he revealed more and more about him. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, he reveals his character. And he will be silent as he is led to the slaughter. And in Micah, he gets specific. And he tells them exactly where this rescuer is going to be born in Bethlehem. And in Isaiah, he gets real specific. He said this rescuer, he'll be born to a virgin. How many times does that happen? And so God gave predictions hundreds of years before it happened so that they could identify the one he was sending. But something else interesting happened. At the close of the Old Testament, there's a 400-year gap between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And there's some really interesting things that happened during that period of history. One of those interesting things is a man by the name of Alexander the Great. And he conquers much of the known world. And he brings Greek culture and Greek lifestyle and Greek language and Greek learning to the people. And following the Greeks come the Romans. And the Romans conquer the known world. And for a period of time under Rome, even though oftentimes it was enforced rather harshly, they brought stability. They brought peace. And they built roads. And travel became much more accessible. But something else happened too. With Greek learning and Greek education there also came philosophers names like Socrates Plato Aristotle and you know what these learned men got people to thinking about the meaning of life they raised questions that on their own they couldn't answer And so it's been said that Greek philosophers plowed the fields of the human heart. But Jesus Christ and his disciples came along and sowed the seeds of meaning. 
So when the curtain goes up on the New Testament, the Jews are living in a world that is is influenced by Greek culture. And it's ruled by the Roman Empire. And they're waiting. They're waiting on their rescuer. They're waiting on the one that they refer to as the Messiah. But then it happens. An angel appears to a priest named Zacharias. And even though he and his wife Elizabeth are advanced in age, he said, you will have a son. And you are to call that son John. Because he's going to be the one to announce the arrival of the king. And that same angel, Gabriel, then goes to Mary. It says, you, you are the one that is going to give birth to the Son of God. And it's Matthew and it's Luke that records that story. And it's Luke that tells you a Savior is born. And it's Matthew who tells you that wise men came seeking He that is born King of the Jews. And that's what's recorded in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 2. And so he arrives as a child, as a baby, fully God, fully man. In the early years, They're mostly quiet. (laughs) But then about age 30, he goes to the Jordan and he's baptized by John and it's announced. And then he's led into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, but Satan's temptations fail this time. Not like it worked with Adam and Eve. And so he'll come forth from the wilderness And he'll start his public ministry. And he'll call his disciples. And he'll begin to teach. And he'll travel all over Palestine. And he'll heal the sick. He'll make the blind to see. The deaf to hear. The lame to walk. And he'll even raise the dead. And the crowds will grow larger and larger. And at first, he'll be kind of elusive about who he is. And the reason for that is because the Jews had certain expectations about their Messiah. And their expectations that it would be political and it would be military. And that's not the kind of king that he was going to be. So in his time, his teaching develops. And he reveals his identity. And states clearly who he is. Three short years will go by. And they'll draw to a climax. And then Jesus will turn south. And he'll take he'll make his final journey towards Jerusalem. And this time, when he enters Jerusalem, 
during that Passover week. He'll not only eat the Passover one last time, he'll become the sacrificial lamb. He'll enter that city as a lamb, but he'll leave as a king. And the lamb of Isaiah will prove himself to be the lion out of Judah. The Christmas story, it's not really about a manger. It's about a cross. And when you fully read the story, it makes it clear. Jesus was born to die. And when you know the entire story, it makes it harder to look at that manger, doesn't it? That scene, that birth, that child, God's son becomes man and he's on a rescue mission and it'll culminate at the cross and it'll be validated with an empty tomb that's the story born to die and some people only read about the birth they need to read what leads up to Bethlehem and then they need to follow him to the Jordan and then to Canaan where he turns the water into wine and then to the dusty roads and the small towns and villages of Galilee where he'll teach and heal and follow him to the mount where he delivers that sermon and then follow him as he turns south and goes through Perea and then stops in Bethany and then he rides into Jerusalem six days later he'll stand before Pilate and then he'll go to Calvary and then he'll go to the cross. And then he'll be laid in a new tomb. But three days later, he'll come out of that tomb. When you know that entire story, then you'll celebrate. But it won't be just once a year. It'll be every Sunday. And you won't gather around a manger. You'll gather around the table. And you'll remember his body and his blood and how he took your place. And you'll do it till he comes again. That's the rescue. And that's the rest of the Christmas story. I want to extend the invitation to any and all that are here this morning. If you understand what the Lord has done for you, and if you're ready to follow Him, 
Or if you've been a follower and your relationship's not right and you need to restore it, we want to help you. While together we stand and while we sing.